Today, we have special guest Kaylee Gray on the show from Australia and the creator of My Food Culture. Kaylee has some really great insights for how we can help young people eat in a balanced and well-rounded way without focusing on restriction. We had a really great conversation. This was recorded a little while ago. At the end of the conversation, I referenced my plans to travel to Australia. I've actually already been. That was before all of the restrictions and COVID started happening. The trip was really a wonderful experience. I didn't have any scary encounters with animals like I was concerned about. And I definitely can recommend traveling there. And not even just to Australia, New Zealand was amazing. I absolutely endorse travel to New Zealand. And as a bonus, they don't have nearly the amount of kind of scary wildlife that Australia does. And their culture there as far as preservation, they value their land and nature in a way that I have seen few other countries do because so much of their economy centers around it. And they just have like this culture of outdoorsiness and a real appreciation for nature that I've just never seen before and just really vibed with. So Whenever all of this is over, you could add that to your list of places to go. So let's jump right into this conversation. School nutrition, dietitian, here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the School Nutrition Dietitian. Thank you so much, Kaylee, for coming on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Dahlia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have an international dietitian on. I've really wanted to feature people from different parts of the world talking about how um, pediatric nutrition is going where they live and how school systems operate. So I interacted with someone from Canada who said there they don't really have a structured school nutrition program. And that made me realize there's just so much that I take for granted about how things are done here. So obviously everybody's doing it differently. Before we get into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about you and your educational background and work history. Absolutely, with pleasure. So in Australia, dietitians, our nomenclature is an APD, an accredited practicing dietitian instead of an RD. So interesting little difference already. But I've been an APD for seven years. So I, I did a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics at university. And I started my clinical career in a pretty orthodox position. I worked two years full-time in a busy clinic, seeing everything from anaphylactic food allergies and kids through to ketogenic diets for epilepsy. Like I got a really broad spectrum in those Like a legitimate keto diet. Yes. what it's meant for. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The the initial evidence-based, you know, application of the keto diet. Right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Important distinction. (laughs) So I did that for two years and, you know, in my heart of hearts, I've always had such an interest in, 
I suppose, the emotional landscape and the social factors that drive our, our eating behaviors. So then I went on and I did some extra training and the non-diet and haze approach, um, which I absolutely love and resonate and embed into everything I do. I've done various positions over the last kind of five years since then. Most recently, three years ago, I started my own company, My Food Culture. And it's, it's a bit of a wild story. I started initially just offering little supermarket tours and cooking classes in partnership with a supermarket because I wanted to think of a bit more of a creative way to, I guess, help the public to engage with food in a more interesting, less kind of, yeah, just a fun and joyful kind of atmosphere. And within 18 months, that had grown to a full-on food events business (laughs) where we had up to 150 people coming to our food events and cooking classes. So, um, Were there you know, other I, dietitians working with supermarkets or were you able to build that up with people not even really being familiar with the concept? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty foreign concept over here in Australia. So I... You know, I've always had, as much as we work in science, Dahlia, I, I've got like a very creative entrepreneurial streak as well. And I love food and I love cooking. And I'm like, well, hey, here's a concept that is something I'd love to do. That's something I think the public would love. And it also benefits the retailer because you're providing a cool and novice service for your customers as well. Yeah. So I just, I'd worked in retail during my university study and I had some connections and Thank, thank goodness. I'm so grateful they gave, you know, this crazy girl a chance on a really wild, wacky idea and it actually really worked. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So what led you to open um, or start your company? So you said you already mm-hmm. had an entrepreneurial spirit, but yeah. was there a gap in the market or a need that you noticed that you mm-hmm. wanted to fill that led to you creating your company? Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful question. And, you know, I, I'm so grateful to all of our colleagues in private who are working in private clinics, who are working in hospitals, who are working in public health positions, you know, there's so much important work there to be done. But with my personality and my passions and interests, I really wanted to be doing a little bit more deeper work with people. So the way I structure my my coaching sessions, for example, these days is I actually run two hour initial sessions because I feel that that's, that's how much of a deep dive I go into people with their eating, which just isn't feasible in a, in a, you know, sort of government health kind of position. And I do, to answer your question, is there a market for it? I, absolutely. I think there is for people with more complicated stuff going on that, that extra rapport, support and help, I think, can make a really big difference. And you mentioned like it being a government position when it comes to clinical, do you have universal healthcare there or how does that work? Cause we don't do that here. Yes. It really interesting differences in our healthcare systems aren't there. So the, the healthcare system in Australia is called Medicare and it essentially it doesn't give us free healthcare, but it gives us heavily subsidized healthcare. So I believe at the moment for a dietetic consultation, the government rebate is about $30, $35 per visit. So it still leaves a significant gap, you know, for an hour consultation. So 
you know, under that system, if I wanted to provide two-hour consultations, you know, um, it's not commercially feasible for any party to run it that way. Great. Like if you've just been diagnosed with diabetes or a food intolerance and you need those shorter sessions, fantastic. But, you know, I love the complicated disordered eating stuff and, and that is a little bit more complicated. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. That's fascinating. So you mentioned, well, some people maybe could tell from your accent already, but you did mention that you're in Australia. What part <laughs> of Australia are you from? Because that's a pretty big country. Yes, it certainly is. And most of it is totally unpopulated too. So we live around the borders in Australia. So I am based on the East Coast in a gorgeous collection of coastal towns referred to as the Sunshine Coast. I would say that it's perhaps a little bit like California was maybe 60 years ago. Oh, wow. (laughs) Beautiful beaches. The coastline of California reminds me very much of um, my home. And to give people a sense exactly of where that is, it's about an hour north of Brisbane, which is the closest city to where I'm, I am right now. Okay, cool. So what is the general feel when it comes to health concerns in your part of the country? And do you feel like it's kind of similar all over Australia? Or you have a lot of variables by region? Yeah, that's, that is an excellent question in itself because the further north that we go in Australia, so North Queensland and Darwin, the Northern Territory, um, that's where a lot of our Indigenous people live. And so, you know, our Australia's history with our Indigenous people is, is incredibly shameful. And there are so many enormous public health concerns happening in that population still. Their life expectancy today is um, 20 years younger than the rest Mm. of the population, which is just a devastating gap. So yeah, so North Australia has very, very different health concerns. But where I'm based in, which I guess is more of a metropolitan region, really, I guess the the health concerns, we had a little chat for the podcast, are fairly similar to America's, as I can kind of ascertain. So there's a massive focus on weight and obesity reduction that's really strongly embedded in our public health guidelines at the moment. But I had a little chat to some of my parent friends and pediatric dietitians before this podcast to do a bit of research. And I I've got some insights into what parents are thinking and worrying about as well, if that's helpful to share. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to hear that. What is the gap like (laughs) between what public health is worried about versus what parents are worried about? Yeah. Yeah. Which often, I guess what we think clinically isn't what's really happening on the ground level, is it? (laughs) Right. So the first thing I guess to offer you some context around the average parent's concern that I was speaking to is that, again, I'm not sure if the US is similar, but here in Australia, most families have got two working parents. So our mortgage prices are exorbitant. Our cost of living is one of the highest in the world. And so the impact for families is that, you know, often we've got dual working parents. And so the theme, the recurrent theme that I was hearing from parents chatting to in preparation for today is, Kaylee, we've got no time. (laughs) We're so time poor. And so I was hearing complaints around fussy eating and children who aren't 
who have basically, it's funny, I had a little giggle the way the parents put it. It was like my kids decide that they don't like something before they've even tried it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty much like here. Uh, But (laughs) I wonder sometimes where that comes from versus it could really be, like you said, people are time poor because I think Mm -hmm. kids are naturally suspicious of new things, which would serve you if you were living, I don't know, like out in a cave somewhere. You don't just want to stuff your face full of like berries you've never seen before. You want to be cautious and make sure they're safe. And I know, I can't remember when I read this, but your sense of smell is stronger when you're a child than even when you're in your early 20s. Like your sense of smell is the first thing to deaden. So something that smells a little iffy to us may smell repulsive to a child. So like cruciferous vegetables kind of all smell a little Mm -hmm. funky. So they may legitimately... Uh, they have legitimate concerns, I'll say. But if you don't have time to offer that again and again and again and again, like my mom had that time in the 80s because she stayed at home with us, I can't imagine that you would have the chance to open up your child to other foods because you literally don't have time for that. You want them to eat, but you also want to sleep maybe at least four hours a night. And... (laughs) You know, you can't fight with them over dinner for hours. Yeah, because you know, isn't that fascinating? Firstly, that sort of primal mechanism that kids have got, and I didn't realize about the sense of smell. I mean, you're totally right. Cruciferous veggies do have a funkiness about them, so you know, it's nice to have that kind of compassionate insight into what's going on for a kid when you're putting broccoli in front of them. Yeah, they're like, um, this smells foul. <laughs> it can't possibly be safe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. It's definitely a dangerous food. It could poison me. But, you know, I I am also part of my business. I I work with um, busy corporate parents and their their capacity is so stretched. So it's a time concern. But as you sort of were, I guess, touching on there, Dahlia, it's also like a capacity thing. At the end of the day, you're exhausted. You've got to fit in sleep and all the rest of it. So battling with your child for an hour of the dinner table isn't feasible for so many parents. Right. That really makes sense. So a lot of pressure kind of falls back on other institutions because who else Mm. is going to do it? You know, I understand why you look at large organizations or public health institutions that have contact with children in your country to try and have interventions because on a population level, it's becoming next to impossible. So what is the school lunch program like in Australia? I had some fun researching this and finding out what's happening currently. So again, really fascinating distinction between what happens in in the States and Australian schools. For starters, if you or your listeners weren't aware of this is that in Australia, we don't have our food catered for children in in schools. You've got to actually pack a lunch at home and the kids bring their own lunchbox and eat it at school. Whereas as I understand it, you guys have food served to you, don't you? This is so interesting to me because all the time I see these memes on the internet 
showing this is what food looks like in Greece and this is what they're eating in Italy. And oh my goodness, look at this sad little American tray. But so far, I have not come across anybody who is feeding their kids in the same centralized way. So that Mm -hmm. plate is just some rockin' whole pack lunch. And we have those here too. So this this is interesting. I I'm gonna be continuing my investigation because it really seems like uh, people are holding the whole school lunch program up to uh, it's apples and oranges basically. Yeah. So, yeah. And and please, I'm not by any means saying that the Australian way is better. It's just or 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 you know I guess no, this there's is a total fun. American thing that we yeah. keep saying. <laughs> look at these trays. What's wrong with our tray? Well, that's not even, you know, that was a home pack lunch. Like give that mom a high five. That doesn't mean that's what everybody ate. Yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. I'm learning lots as well. So yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> that's isn't fascinating it? to me because I just think it's interesting that you could have universal health care, but then people pack their own lunch. I don't know why that's like, wow. So because that's literally what the Canadian food science major just told me. Okay, so yes, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like we're, we're Western countries, but there's definitely differences in how we roll things, right? Yeah, right. So one policy that at least exists within Queensland schools. So sorry, Queensland's the state that I live in, and so a lot of our education policies in Australia and school policies are done on a state by state, state versus federal basis. The current Queensland education policy for Australian schools is called Crunch and Sip. So what that basically consists of, I know it's a weird name. Crunch (laughs) Crunch and what? Crunch and Sip, like to sip water. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So what this mandates is that for Queensland schools, they must break at least once a day um, and encourage kids to have, they've got to have a fruit or veggie based snack and they've got to rehydrate with some water. That's kind of the the only real existing you have to put in place. The other, all the rest of it is essentially, yeah, Up comes to back school. to the family. Okay. Yeah. Or the, to pack and provide for their kids. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, that is fascinating. Now, what about physical activity? Is there mandatory physical education classes there? Yeah, certainly throughout primary school. So that's years um, one through to six and then middle school as well, which I think is seven through to nine. But from the ages of 15, 16 and 17, kids can elect in high school as to whether or not they're doing school sports or movement. So and, you know, that's an interesting thing to put in place because I don't know about you, Dahlia, but when I was in my teens, that's the t- age where you're so self-conscious about exercising in front of boys and stuff. So I really feel like it should be mandated all the way through. But yes, <laughs> well, there were a lot of girls that really hated PE. They would come up with some pretty bogus excuses yeah. to get out of <laughs> PE. But I do remember thinking that it it just could have been better. They really had some amazing opportunities. They did introduce some things that were fun, but it really seemed like it depended on your particular instructor, how hard they were trying to find the type of movement that every kid might love. 
it, some yeah. people, they just always did the same old thing and like calisthenics, that's not exciting. And kids want <laughs> to play, even as a teenager, you probably want to play, but not mm. everybody's athletically inclined. Not everybody has good hand-eye coordination. And like you said, teenagers are so self-conscious. So the last thing you mm. want to do if you're not an athlete is be forced to play a sport where you know you're going to be terrible. You know you're going to be big last. <laughs> and the whole thing's just going to be a disaster. Uh, we had yeah. some that introduced line dancing, which as dorky as oh. it was, I thought that was really fun. Yeah. And we did square dancing. I- I'm just really into music and any kind of organized yeah. dancing. So I'm not yeah. sure my peers loved it, but I thought it was great. <laughs> but softball and all of that, oh, just no. Some things need to be voluntary. So can you yeah. tell me about your food philosophy and your philosophy around movement? You mentioned the Hayes approach. What mm. is that? Yeah, so the, the Hayes approach is, so Hayes is an acronym standing for health at every size. And the core philosophy, as I understand and, and interpret it, is that basically we focus on health irrespective of somebody's weight. So it's a very body positive, body inclusive approach to health. And it basically says, you know what, it's the behaviors that are really going to make the biggest difference to our health and well-being, um, the quality of the food you eat, how you move your body, um, how you look after even your social life. So it's got like a very holistic, beautiful, rounded feel about it. We're not focusing on the scales or dieting or, or body shape or weight at all. So hazes for everybody. <laughs> oh, I love that. You mentioned that you loved cooking before you even went to nutrition and dietetics. So what yeah. has your relationship with food been like? How would you describe how you see food, the role that it should play in our lives. Yeah. So that has shifted enormously over the last 15 years. So, you know, I'm very open in my business about the fact that um, in my late teens, I really struggled with disordered eating myself. So hence why, you know, the haze and non-diet approach has such a near and dear place in my heart too. And it really helped me to understand that what you put in your mouth isn't just about the calories or the nutrients or how healthy it is. I believe that food is such an important part of our social, cultural, it's, it's even part of like the fabric of families. Like I, I'm 32 and I grew up in a time where we still sat down for family dinners without TV and to eat and share and laugh together each night. Those are some of my fondest memories from my childhood, (laughs) which just doesn't happen in most families today here. I believe that learning to rediscover the joy of food and cooking, learning to trust food again, learning to trust your body and the signals that it is giving us all the time around what feels good and what doesn't feel good as far as food's concerned is just a really yummy, sustainable way of approaching health and well-being. I love the way you phrase that, that it's a yummy way to approach health and well-being. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I really, I definitely agree that we can't neglect what a joyful experience food is meant to be and think mm-hmm. that we're going to come across something that's sustainable. I think sometimes when I'm explaining this in workshops and seminars and programs, people are like, oh, so Kayla, you're saying that if, you know, if it's joyful for me to eat chocolate three times a day, then that would be great for my health. I'm like, no, 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 that's not the message here. Right. <laughs> when I say joyful, it, that's really looking at it from a very three-dimensional way 
of, of how that experience of food is for you. So, I mean, I eat chocolate fairly regularly, but would it be joyful for me if I ate it three times a day? I'd feel really sick. <laughs> so the joy of, you know, sometimes it feels really joyful to prepare a beautiful, I don't know, green smoothie or big salad and to treat yourself with nourishing food can be a joy, act of joy as well. So I just wanted to make that little nuance there. Yes. And I think, yes, because people don't trust their bodies, the Mm. assumption is, oh, if I let it loose, if I loosen my grip on my appetite, I'm going to go crazy and I'm just going to go off the deep end. But if you think back to childhood, when you didn't have all of these food beliefs and you just ate what you wanted to and didn't what you didn't want to, much to your parents' Mm -hmm. chagrin, you (laughs) can think to like, oh, remember that time your mom turned her back and you ate as much candy as you wanted. Your body shut that down. You don't have to worry Mm -hmm. about the excess because like you said, you're going to get sick. And you probably won't do that again. So Mm -hmm. if you're really in tune with your body and you're doing what feels good, eating low nutrient food all the time does not feel good. So you don't have to worry that you're just going to have cookies and ice cream for days on end because you'll feel awful. So it's only when you're in that disordered way of looking at food where you're always thinking about restriction, like when there's Mm -hmm. a little window for you to have a forbidden food, then you overindulge. But when you can Mm -hmm. have it whenever, like, who wants five pieces of cake? Literally nobody in reality. <laughs> the only time you would yeah. ever do that is when you think I'm never going to have cake again. So yes. today I'm eating all of the cake. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And yes, I can, you know, I personally relate to that relationship with treat food and I see it in my, my clients all the time as well. And You know, it's interesting. Children are actually, as adults, some of our greatest teachers when it comes to having a good relationship with food. I've got a 10-year-old nephew who stays with me fairly regularly and he I just find him so fascinating the way he eats. Like some mornings, I cannot fill this kid up. It's like I'll do two lots of eggs on toast. It'll be, auntie, can I have a smoothie? It's like he's this bottomless pit. And then other mornings, he's like, I just want an apple. And, you know, Billy isn't sitting there going, geez, I've been such a healthy boy this morning for only eating 478 kilojoules and an apple. Oh God, I was this horrible pig for blowing out on all those eggs on toast. He is just listening to his body and making decisions accordingly. And when we give some kids some freedom with that, yeah, we to a large extent can regulate our own nutrition needs intuitively and beautifully. Yes, absolutely. I definitely think that's true. Well, what is the food culture like in Australia? What are the typical foods? And do you see big differences between what we're eating in the States? And you mentioned you've, you've visited the West Coast before here. So you know that California is essentially like another country. Like it really doesn't represent (laughs) what the rest of the U.S. is eating. Uh, I feel like there are aspirational selves. I know not all Americans agree with that, but I'm like, yeah, what they're doing out there in no way connects with my part of the country, but yeah, gives you an idea. So what are you guys eating? So 
there's a huge coffee culture on the Sunshine Coast and we're very outdoorsy. So, you know, it's warm all year round. You can virtually jump in the ocean at any time of year and it's going to be bearable. So there's a lot of, we've got a huge brunch culture. But what I noticed in terms of eating out in America is that it's a lot more fresh over here and different portions. Like (laughs) I've got a big appetite. I I can pack it away when I really want to. But even when I was in the States, I was like, Steve, you're going to have to help me out, man. (laughs) I can't get all this down. The portions were just massive by comparison. They are. And, you know, the other thing that you know, I found fascinating was the, there's a lot of fast food I I noticed in comparison to Australia. I mean, we've certainly got McDonald's and, you know, fast food chains around, but not in the concentration and density that I was noticing in the States. That being said, your beer is amazing. Oh, okay. That (laughs) is good to know. That is good to know. Yeah, we really are. There is like a whole culture built up around that. And then the food that you find in that setting, it's, it is it is a whole thing. Yeah. Now, it's when it level. comes to, well, being time poor, I assumed that Australians had all kinds of vacation and holiday time because no matter where you go, like if you go to a major national park in the United States, there's at least one Australian there, in my yeah. experience. <laughs> so how are, you guys, with all, how are you getting all this vacation time if they're working you guys so hard? What's the average work week, do you think? Is it 40 hours or is it more? Look, on paper and what the average Australian's getting paid for would be 38 to 40 hours. But a lot of us are on salaried jobs, which means that you kind of, you've got to stay and get the job done. So I would think the average Australian's working nine hours a day, Monday to Friday, plus some commute time. So, I, I, yeah, how does that compare to the similar. states? Of interest? Pretty yeah. similar, yeah. And then uh, I don't have any children, and I don't know how people who do get any sleep because with your commute plus being at the office, nine, ten hours is not strange, and coming home and actually wanting to prepare a meal, it it just Mm. seems like a lot. So I do see that. I think that's one of the barriers is that people don't have the time to cook at home. And because Mm -hmm. this is the second or the third generation that hasn't had the time to cook, people Mm -hmm. don't even know how anymore, because when would you be instructed if you're, parent is working all these hours, there's no time to teach you to cook either. So uh, mm-hmm. now even if someone comes across an extra hour or two in their schedule, you know, <laughs> what are they going to do yeah. with it? Like then you would have to look up a recipe and get on YouTube. At least now we have more resources for instruction. So yes, that's yeah. a positive. It, it is, but it's also, you know, it's a double-edged sword in some ways too, because it can also be overwhelming. So some of the feedback I was getting from the mamas that I reached out to before today's podcast was like, you know, on one sense, they're overwhelmed and they're paralyzed with trying to decide what they should be cooking or because there's so many different opinions, right, about health out there. And so I think there's a part of parents that are yearning for some simplicity as well in what they should be doing and cooking and providing for their kids. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like like yourself, I'm not a mum myself, so I'm speaking vicariously through the the women that I spoke to. But that that's the sense I got from them. Yeah. Well, that is one of the things I really like about approaching nutrition from a scientific perspective. Is I understand because I've worked in public health settings with moms before. I understand that some people do don't really want input from someone who they don't think has had the same experience as them. But the truth Mm -hmm. of the matter is no two people have the same experience. So even if you are a parent, that doesn't mean you know what all other parents are going through. And if you think anyone wants to hear about how they should raise their kid, just because you're a parent, good luck with that. Because that (laughs) (laughs) does not go over well for anybody. So I just tell people, you know, hey, I'm just... uh, Fitballing ideas here. I'm just here to help. Don't don't kill the messenger. And it's about you and what you know will fit for your life. Like you try and give people some ideas and say, hey, this is what other people have said was working well for them. You can pick and choose. You can do what you would like. All I can tell you is what the research currently indicates is good mm-hmm. for most people. Because that's really, most of our research is based on the general population. There will always be outliers. So you would really hate to present something as like 100% of the time, this is going to work for everyone. Well, that's just, that's not how anything works, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's even our RDIs in Australia are based on an on the average. So what about the other 50% who's above or below that RDI average? Like it's, you know, uh, look, I, ha- I love our profession. I've got enormous respect for the amazing researchers and people who develop this information for us. But by the same token, nutrition science is hard. You know, (laughs) as you were kind of alluding to there, everyone's got different factors, our biology, our genes. So we've got very well-informed, educated guesses in a sense with a lot of our nutrition guidelines as well, don't we? (laughs) Yeah, and nobody wants to hear that because I know that's how I feel even when I go to the doctor. I'm like, everybody's guessing. You know, I didn't sit in this waiting room for a guess. I want an answer and I want to be right the first time. So I can understand their frustration, but... We just have to be realistic. Yeah, and if you press someone to give you a definitive answer, know that you are forcing them to give you bad information. Yeah, totally. Human beings don't fit into check boxes, do we? Yeah, exactly. And really, yeah. I think that's why health professionals should be facilitators in a lot of instances more than anything else, because you are the one who should be observing how your body is reacting to treatment and to dietary changes every day. So yeah, I know it's difficult, especially for children, because uh, sometimes they don't have the words to explain when they feel a shift. So it's even interesting to me to see how you identify an allergic reaction in a a child, the ways that they may describe their symptoms is totally different Mm -hmm. from what an adult would say. And so it's all been really interesting thinking about how, where you are in the life cycle, whether you're aging and you're starting to, there are just so many things that changes you move from birth to the opposite end. Yes, <laughs> that you really need to be aware when you're trying to help people of how 
the stage of development affects the person you're attempting to help. So I know here in the States, there recently was a lot of controversy around an app targeted at children meant to help them lose weight. Yeah, you know, it's coming. (laughs) So that to me was problematic on many levels because of how malleable self-esteem is in a very young person and Mm -hmm. how negatively poor self-esteem can affect your body and your whole life. So I really felt like people might've been missing how important it was to think about the stage of development of that target customer. I Mm -hmm. don't feel that's an appropriate intervention for somebody that age ever because of the potential for damage. How was uh, that the concept of a weight loss app for children received in Australia? Mm, I love how diplomatically and beautifully articulated <laughs> <laughs> you put that. Yeah, I was <laughs> so like, I'm going to try and remain as calm and grounded as you just were. So- <laughs> yeah, that's not how I would be a regular. But I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I don't want any quotes to come back and bite me. So. Yeah. And, you know, we have to be careful because I do. Look, when I started my career, you know, I don't know what the training for dietitians is like in America, but in Australia, it's totally weight centric. So I left Mm. as a bright eyed, bushy, you know, tailed young dietitian thinking that I was going to save the world and help everyone with weight loss, you know, and for so many reasons, that's arrogant and incorrect, (laughs) however well-intentioned. Right. So, you know, we only know what we know. And I think there's really good people working in that space who genuinely have good interests as well. So I just want to open with that. However, disordered eating and body image is my ballpark and area of expertise and speciality. So I feel very confident speaking to the risks of putting any child on a caloric or restrictive eating plan. So the first thing is that for a child or teenager who goes on any form of diet, they are 18 times more likely to develop a proper eating disorder. 18 times. This isn't a slightly increased risk. That is dramatic. And as you would know, and our professional colleagues listening in, you know, eating disorders are incredibly hard to treat. Once they've got their teeth into you, they've got the highest mortality outcome of any mental health condition in Australia at the moment. And yeah, they're just notoriously resistant to psychological intervention. So whatever we can do to stop people from developing eating disorders, I think needs to be taken very seriously. The second thing you spoke to is the whole self-esteem body image concept as well. So in my practice, I'm hearing, I see girls as young as eight years old who are articulating to me that they are too fat. And, you know, I just think we need like a second for that to pause in. When I was eight years old, I was still playing with Barbie dolls. I wouldn't have had the slightest concept of being fat, thin or anything. You know, my body was just my body. Yet for so many reasons, there is this increasing and pervasive concern amongst children and teenagers about what their body image is. It's within the top three concerns for young people in Australia at the moment. So to be put on a regulated calorie-restricted eating plan by any person of authority in your life is reinforcing that message from diet culture that your body needs to be controlled, not trusted, and regulated within a certain size. So 
that's my gentle way of saying that, you know, that there's lots of concerns with the app for us here in Australia. I haven't heard any positive you know messages of support from dietitians and in fact there's some petitions circulating against it within you know our, our our regulatory bodies and things as well so psychologists and dietitians over here in Australia are extremely concerned about it yeah yeah I had no idea that the risk of having a diagnosed eating disorder increased that much as a yeah. result of dieting at that stage of development. That's really disturbing. So what do you tell parents if they, if a client comes to you and they are concerned about health outcomes for their child, they just want the best for them. And a, a lot of people, because they conflate health and weight, they get concerned and everybody fluctuates as they grow. Sometimes you put on a little bit of weight as you're gearing up for a growth spurt, but it, it can be scary, I think, for um, parents who are really just concerned about the health of their child. What do you recommend outside yeah. of that restriction and telling the kid to look outside of themselves for permission to eat? Yeah, this is a really tricky conversation to navigate with parents because the first thing that I think really needs to be established is boundaries of responsibility around food decisions with children and parents. And how I see this, my view, is that children should not have the burden of deciding what they're allowed and not allowed to eat. (laughs) Like trying to get your child to intellectualize their food choices isn't appropriate under any circumstance, unless there's a food allergy involved. So the first kind of conversation I have with parents is this really needs to be a parent-led thing. So you know, I think it can be very damaging to single out kids and, you know, make them the fat kid of the family. I hate using those words, but that's kind of the the vibe that can right. come up. It's It's got to be, you know, parent inclusive and family changes. So that's, a, that's the first kind of thing I explain and that the, you know, and I always acknowledge to parents that, look, you're doing the best you can. I know you've got, you know, you've, you've parents have got an incredibly tough gig and the information out there is super confusing about what to do but you know just having that conversation with them saying you know this has got to come from you it's not on the child's shoulders to carry this really important and the second thing I always talk about is that basically what you said about you know it's natural for kids weight to go up and down if they're moving their body and eating a wide range of nutritious foods, their weight will, they'll naturally grow into the weight that is right for them and their unique body as well. And so then we'd be having conversations about what to add in. I never, ever, ever restrict anything out of a child's diet, but it's like, well, what's some foods and meals and ideas of stuff that we can build in to really nourish the whole family, including the child that you're concerned about? Right. That makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of the concerns that people have get confused. You think high body weight means poor health and means you only eat low nutrient foods when sometimes Mm -hmm. that is the case and not all the time. But like you mentioned earlier, in a health at every size approach, you can pursue health at any weight. And Mm. eating high nutrient foods 
is beneficial no matter what size body you're in. And everybody is unique and you may not get the size body you had in mind. And that's okay. (laughs) I guess that's the hardest part for people to accept is that just pursue health for the sake of pursuing health. And I'm not even saying that health is an obligation, but for a lot of people to live the life you want to live, health is very helpful. Uh, And however that shows up for you, because not everybody is eating a ton of vegetables, isn't going to magically eliminate all kinds of illnesses, you know, that are chronic, even though you see that put out there all the time online. They're like, oh, I just drank celery juice for months and (laughs) I was cured of all of these conditions. Well, that if that was really a scientifically validated statement, you would have heard about it somewhere aside from Instagram or Facebook, you know? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So you can eat a healthy diet, but it's like you said earlier, it's one part of a bigger picture of health and mm. it won't be the same for everyone when this picture's, you know, complete. Absolutely. And it's also, I think, taking consideration for the psychological toll of, of, you know, kids and stuff in this situation as well. I mean, even, you know, to give an example from my own life, Um, I have two sisters. There were three girls within three years. We all ate the same diet and my sister genetically just carries more weight naturally. And so um, my mom never took her to the dietitian or anything, but I hear from other families and kids in that situation who, you know, that even just going to see a dietitian and having that kind of whole experience, you know, you've got to tread really, really carefully here because they're already hypersensitive to it. through social media and school influences as well. And so we we don't want to create harm here, not just from the perspective of what they're eating, but what their experiences working with health professionals in these really sensitive, tricky topics, what that's going to be like for them and what they're going to remember for the rest of their life too. Right. Absolutely. It it is fascinating to see that children raised in the same home can end up being so distinct, but we're used to people being unique in some ways, but we really have been sold a a false bill of goods when it comes to there being a direct relationship between what you eat and what size your body is, because that isn't the only factor. Of course, calories are a factor, but Mm. that's not all there is. You know, I've known twins that were fed precisely the same thing because that's how their parent did food prep and Mm -hmm. their weight expression has just been completely different. It's always been completely different. You know, isn't that amazing? So were they identical twins or um, identical twins? Wow. In the end, uh, the twin whose weight was always higher eventually had to have her thyroid removed because she had nodules that were affecting her thyroid function. So that was part of the explanation for why her metabolism was always different. But, you know, looking at her, you just would have thought, oh, well, this twin's getting up and eating extra food at night. It's like now she's eating the exact same thing. Stop giving her a hard time. Yeah. 
Totally. We all need a bit of, a bit of grace with this stuff for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you recommend for people who uh, want to increase their physical activity, but they don't want to mm-hmm. do it in an ex- excessive way? And they're really trying to find something that they could do for the rest of their lives. Yes. So the key here is enjoyment, right? If you naturally enjoy an activity, you're going to start incline yourself towards it. For years and years and years, I was that, you know, stereotypical gym junkie. Like if I was sick, I'd still go and just smash my body. I was all about no pain, no gain. Hated every second of it. Oh. But thought that's what I had to do. You know, early 20s, being silly, or not being silly, but just not knowing any better at that time. And I totally did my knee in through overtraining and overexercising. And so I, the only thing I could do through that time was yoga. And in my head at that time, it was like, yoga is not exercise, roll of eyes. It's just stretching. <laughs> but I loved it. And, you know, that was eight years ago. And I still like, I can't wait to go to my yoga class at the end of the day. And you know, when you find that activity for yourself, one that you really naturally gravitate to and stuff, it's good for your mental health as well, because it becomes time out from your life. So enjoyment is absolutely key. And that can look different for everybody else, right? Some people maybe do enjoy like lifting weights at the gym and go, go figure if that's you. I think that's great, but it wasn't me. (laughs) Yeah. Like people who go to CrossFit, are they doing CrossFit there too? I feel like it's. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. I mean, they love it. They love it. I think it's for social people who like to work out in a team environment So I'm like, good for them. It's funny that joyful movement on one person could just look like really intense, insane exercise. But everyone I've met that goes to CrossFit constantly, they love it. So good for them. (laughs) Props to you people. (laughs) Yeah, I will be joining them. Yeah, I had a similar issue. Like I overtrained. I was really enjoying my workout classes, but... I was also using it to help manage stress, which is Mm. a good thing, but I was ignoring signals from my body and then my knee was like, Mm. stop right now. (laughs) (laughs) So I really still enjoy outdoor activities and hiking. We were talking before Mm. the call that I am going to be visiting Australia. I'm very excited and Mm. I do love outdoorsy activities, but... I am afraid of everything outdoors. So like (laughs) spiders, uh, just any surprise critter, I'm not into it. So I'm really (laughs) reluctant to do anything outside in Australia. So are there less critters on the coast or where are all these huge bugs and all these snakes that we see on TV? Where do they live? Oh, please let me put your mind at ease. (laughs) So I feel like... I feel like Americans and and Brits, you're terrified of our country, but please come. It's beautiful and it's very, very safe if you're not doing a few key silly things. And it's, you know, interestingly, we did we did a big trip to US and Canada two years ago and I was terrified of bears because we did a lot of hiking and I'm like, but, you know, I, I routinely as a kid used to run over snakes on a jog and not think anything of it. Oh, but the you whole thought? Time- you would oh, see yeah. it and just keep going. Well, you can oh, identify yeah. that it was not poisonous. Well, 
No, not exactly. Oh, it's, wow. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very rare to get a snake bite. And so typically snakes are far more scared of you than you're scared of the snake. So they're highly, highly sensitive to vibration. So the act of you walking and thumping as you approach will scatter most snakes. The really, really highly venomous ones are more like if you were doing full on like bush bashing, walking out okay. in the sticks, in which case they're a simple, like, they're like a uh, leather guards that you can wear over the bottom of your legs and stuff for some protection. I do not, I cannot remember the last reported snake bite or snake death in Australia. They're actually really skittish. Really? Okay. Okay. And I also heard that koalas are aggressive, even though they're oh. cute. Do they approach people or as long as you don't try and get close to one, you're fine? Yeah. So koalas, so for starters, they're um, endangered. So you're pretty oh. lucky if you even get to see a koala. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. The, they sleep something like 22 hours a day. So often there's a beautiful uh, national park called Noosa about 45 minutes from where I live. And sometimes you can see them sleeping up in the eucalypt. They very, very rarely come down. They're super, super lazy koalas. Ah. Um, so you wouldn't even have a chance to get too close to them in the okay. wild anyway. They've got big claws and they could scratch, but yeah. They just, they won't come okay. near you either. I'm, okay. Okay, good. That <laughs> makes me feel better. <laughs> me I'm too. so glad you came on. It's so interesting to hear how many things our food systems have in common and where the differences are. What is one thing you would like to leave everyone with? What is your hope for the future for your company, my food culture, and the change you want to see in the people that you interact with? Mm, beautiful question. So, you know, I, my core company philosophy is that I want to provide safe spaces for people to feel good about food and their bodies. And I think, you know, we're trained health professionals, right? So sometimes we kind of get overly focused on we're helping people with health, but I think just having that, that appreciation and gratitude for how much food has a ripple effect into other people's, into other areas of people and kids' lives as well. I think, yeah, my sincere hope from this conversation is that people listening have, uh, or maybe have just broadened their perspective or, you know, opened up a little bit more towards all of that. So thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a delight and I've learned so much as well and love connecting with people in interesting countries, doing interesting work as you are. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, my pleasure. I thought that conversation was just great. We covered a lot of territory. It's a lot of things for people to think about when it comes to how you help the young people around you relate to food. Early next week, I'm going to be releasing a bonus episode. The interview is in Spanish. This is with a dietitian in Spain. I initially seriously considered overdubbing it and ducking the audio so that you could hear me translating everything in English. But it turned out it just wasn't interesting to listen to it just having my voice, 
rather than the two voice. I don't know. I decided I didn't want to do that, but I am willing to go so far as translating it in subtitles on YouTube. So if you don't speak Spanish, then you can pop over to YouTube and watch that episode there. Be sure to subscribe and then hit the little bell because all the time I release things on YouTube that are not included in the regular podcast. And if you do speak Spanish, then of course, just listen to that episode here on your favorite podcast player. And do not judge me for having a strong North American accent, because after all, that is what I am. I am excited that I got beyond my fears of speaking Spanish in public because I have a history of my accent being ridiculed, but whatever it is done, done is better than perfect. I am embracing that and more moving forward and expressing my creativity in whatever way I feel called. And I suggest everyone else do the same. It's much more fun than beating yourself up and striving for perfection because that's literally not possible. Humans are not perfect. All right, everybody, I will see you either next week for the bonus or the week after that for our regular show. Stay well, be safe.